Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel we have John Epperson. Hello everyone. Dave Kimura. Hey everyone. Valentino Stoll. Hey now. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs and this week we have a special guest that is Jake Yesbeck. Jake, do you want to remind people who you are? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, my name is Jake and I am the head of engineering at a company called Nomad based out of Denver as a remote leader in the company for a non-remote company. So it's a little bit of an interesting dynamic. And uh, yeah, excited to talk about it. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there. And we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Cool. So you're, you don't work from the office then or? That's right. Yeah. I work from my home. I've actually been remote working since about 2016. Nice. Yeah. I went freelance and went remote in 2010. And yeah, it's funny because I had some folks call me in to see, you know, we were just getting to know each other. They're trying to hire some people and they were like, well, you sound like the kind of person we want to hire. And so then they started talking to me about the commute and what it'd be like to work from their office. And I told them no. (laughs) The remote is really is once you do it right, I think that it's the best way to be a developer. Oh, man. Well, one thing that that just came into play, I mean, my youngest is in first grade now. But like last year when she was in kindergarten, like half the day, my wife would be working because she worked at the school. She was running their lunch program. So I could, I'd go pick up my daughter and then she'd be home half the day, right? Because she can't leave five-year-old home alone. Well, I guess it's not a good idea. You shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't. <laughs> they frown on that. But before that, she'd have preschool in the neighborhood. And so I'd go pick her up. I'd drop her off at nine, pick her up at 1030 or 11. And yeah, it was nice being here. If my wife needed to go take care of something with one of the other kids, she could just go. And that's kind of where a lot of it came in, right? Is For me, it was a lifestyle choice. It wasn't necessarily a work style. But I'll tell you, if I had to count all the times that people weren't coming by my desk and going, hey, I have a quick question. I can ignore Slack. I'm really good at ignoring Slack. Just ask my coworker. I mean, anyway, it's but I can put my head down and get some work done. And nobody, nobody's in my physical space to force me to give them attention until I'm ready. All right, at so least that's what I like. <laughs> so back when I was working in the office, I won't say the name of the company, but because that's irrelevant. But my desk was right by a primary employee entrance and exit. And so I'm sitting there coding one day. And this lady comes up to my computer. And she just starts like getting all up in my face, pointing all around my screen. Saying like, what time is it? What time is it? Because I was on an Apple computer. She was used to Windows. So our clock is on the top right. And I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, like, look at your phone. Look at your watch. So yeah, the work environment in an office is really 
it's great for the camaraderie, but it's also very annoying in situations where you're really trying to focus and you get a lot of these distractions of not important or not work-related things. Yeah. The other thing is, at least for me, is that sometimes I'm in the mood for the camaraderie, right? It's like, hey, yeah, I want to sit and chat about whatever, you know, the weather, politics, you know, anything that'll piss people off. And sometimes I want, I, I, I just don't want to people at all, right? It's just like, I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to hear anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody, right? And so if I wanted to do that, I can. I can turn off Slack. I can turn off Twitter. I can turn off all the people stuff. And my kids aren't going to be home till like 2.30 this afternoon. So I literally can just shut it down if I need to. Yeah. And so yeah, it's both. You know what's funny about the um, the office plan, too? I don't know about that story, Dave, if there was an open office floor plan or what. But yep. I always thought it was funny when it was a gigantic open office and then everyone had big headphones on to drown uh-huh. out the noise. I said, why, why are we here <laughs> if for three hours you want to be quiet in a desk full of 50 other people? Well, and the bad thing back then, back 2016 prior, there wasn't really good noise cancellation headphones. No, those haven't serviced until the more recent years. You could get decent ones, but they were really, really expensive. Okay, but our rule... $200 headphones. Yeah. Back in 2010, that was the last time I worked in an office environment. Yeah, I mean, headphones on, it was a rule, at least in the bullpen for the devs. If headphones on meant don't bug me unless it's an emergency. And so then it's like, so why do we have this big open room where I can hear you guys talking at the whiteboard, even though I have my headphones on? I found this to be a 50-50 for me. I worked at a advertising agency where it was open floor plan, and there was always meetings going on that you're getting pulled into. So it was like kind of like no time for headphones. But then I moved to a consultancy where mm-hmm. there was like lots of pairing sessions. And so like you could have headphones, but then, you know, just say someone could wave at you and you know, take the headphones off and be like, hey, you want to pair on something? And so, I mean, having that interaction to be able to pair like that uh, is definitely, you know, very helpful. But, you know, now there are solutions to do that remotely, too. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm torn on the whole. I, personally, I don't like going into the office, <laughs> but I could see somebody getting value out of it mm-hmm. that way. Right. Like, how do like junior engineers like uh, Jake, if you want to speak to that, like how do your you know younger engineers get the interface time that they need with getting up to speed with things? For sure. Yeah, it's a it's a big problem, actually. I I actually used to work for test level consultancy and they mm-hmm. only hired senior and staff level engineering, basically, because learning to be an engineer remotely is is really tough. And so since it's a consultancy and it's a remote consultancy. They kind of, you know, only hired that at the time. Their policies might have changed. I can't speak for that. But when I took this position, I actually had a, had a team member that was early in his career and I hired two other early career engineers. And it is, it's a delicate balance to make sure that you are giving people the support and the avenues for success. And what I've found is a lot of communications over Slack, which is a little obvious, but impromptu Zoom meetings and scheduled pairing sessions are the two things that we do Mm -hmm. every week that really make a big difference, especially with those early career. Like I am in my role, I'm much more of like a player coach, slowly going into just the coach role. But I was, you know, down in the weeds and the code and writing a lot of code every day. And so the pairing sessions really with the difference maker. And the biggest thing I'd say about that is consistency. 
if you're trying to make remote pairing sessions work. So, yeah. Have you guys ever remotely paired using technologies or Zoom or whatever? Mm -hmm. I have that going on right now at my place or whatever. And in the past, I've done it as well. I also have been, I was tutoring people before COVID. And then during COVID, we switched to being fully remote. And it works. It's not as good. And so, I, I mean, I think I think it's really important to bring up like the junior problem. If you're like, well, hey, I'm just going to go fully remote and you're not thinking about how you're going to handle junior growth and development, like you're you're deep doo doo. Like you have to think about how you're going to handle that. There's a lot that goes into that because people do like to interact on a personal, you know, personable level. And when you have juniors who geez, they're just they're just not sure how to how long to spend on things and how long to go before you know they can ask for help and you know somebody behind a slack handle isn't really giving you the the same signals that somebody sitting over in their chair looking at you like uh, randomly during the day might be like kind of hinting that they're like they may want help like there there's all sorts of signals that can come out of them and you're like mm, i think they need help but they just don't want to ask for it yet you know and you're not going to catch those you will catch the people who are just more active and and uh, gosh proactive you're going to catch those people those are going to those people are just fine but they were going to be just fine anyway so proactive people just typically kind of are they know how to get their own help but but for people that are not proactive you're going to have to set up and come up with ways to to do that I also agree the regularity helps so far, but there may be other things too that you're going to have to think of. I spent a lot of time yeah. making sure that like the structure was in place without seeming too micromanaging because you know that's that's the balance in my opinion is if you're constantly asking, "Hey, how are you doing with this? How are you doing with this?" then you don't give the room for mistakes and growth. But then if you don't do it enough, then a week has gone by and it didn't have to without them progressing. And that's frustrating for them and you one know, of the tools that I found really useful for pairing remotely is because our team all uses Visual Studio Code, there's an extension from Microsoft that is publicly available now called LiveShare. And it'll allow you to share your VS Code session collaboratively collaboratively with someone else. And they also have LiveShare Audio, which allows a audio bridge between the session. And the nice thing about this is if Let's say if I am a big Vim user, and so I have all my key bindings and everything set up for Vim, but then someone else is maybe a Sublime Text user, and they have all their key bindings. Well, Visual Studio Code with the live share will allow me to retain all my extensions and all of my key bindings and everything, but then be able to interact with the code base that someone is sharing with me. And I can then go and see what they're typing as they're typing it. And they can see the changes and the things that I'm typing. So I think a tool like that is extremely helpful for pair programming remotely. And I think has a lot of value to especially the junior who maybe wants to see how you are clicking through to do a discovery on a bug fix or something like that. For sure. I use the Zoom. I'm a little bit more low tech with how we do it. We just Zoom and screen share and take turns driving. That's what I call it maybe push up some changes to remote, swap who's driving, and then pull it back down. But yeah, I, I would love to try something like that. I still just use Vim, so maybe I'll try I think I think they also added a feature to Zoom now to where you can allow somebody else to control your computer remotely through Zoom, right? So you get on the call and 
hey, well, let me help you with this real quick, rather than having to switch who's driving you effectively just say, okay, I'm going to give you permission to control the keyboard and mouse, and then they can do the thing. There was a, I'm trying to remember, there was a screencasting service screen that Slack bought that went, Screen yeah, Hero that, was I awesome. don't know if anybody's played with and Tuple. And I think... It's kind of been like the remake, <laughs> yeah. but it's a pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, yeah, the, I can't remember who, ben Ort- the name of the guy behind Ben Ornstein, yeah. yeah. Rook. Ben Ornstein. Um, ben Ornstein, Yeah. And so that that's been awesome that they went and re, kind of recreated that because it, it's just so nice to be able to kind of have that dual mode. the The flip side is, and the thing that I've seen is that if you're in person, the the one interface that I miss is being able to point at my screen, right? And so just get my finger and just say this here, right? This right here. Otherwise, I have to take control of the mouse and kind of move it around it or something, right, to get their attention there. And what I found is that, yeah, kind of the way that Screen Hero worked where you had the two mouse. So I had my mouse and their mouse. I don't have to play control games in order to do that. I can just move my mouse over where I want them to look. Yeah, I use the annotate feature on Zoom, a little like pencil. Draw oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. All the time. Box diagrams, how objects talk to other objects, stuff like that. It's it's good enough, but I don't know how far it scales. I would love to try these other technologies. Maybe I will one day. My six-year-old would draw kitties with that. Anyway. But then there's the other side of the the junior remote discussion, which is like the not just pairing on technical stuff, right? The other career growth things. Mm-hmm. And those things have been something I've spent a lot of time thinking about too. So we have, you know, a remote book club session at my company that I set up so that people go through a technical book and change who, who leads a chapter, do like remote happy hours, other things to like inject mm-hmm. some of these, some of these like office norms into remote culture. Have you guys experienced any of these? Kind of things? Yeah, we do a book club at Doximity. That's really great uh, engineering book club. And th- that definitely is like something you can get people up to speed on a particular topic for sure. I mean, we also off sites that <laughs> they're, they do like in-persons, like we, we call them really, you know, everybody gets together, you know, once a, every few months. There is something to having that FaceTime that can be missed. It does like, it's like just a huge help for actually, you know, recognizing people and their mannerisms. And, you know, you learn a lot from people like face to face that you wouldn't otherwise that, I don't know, I, there, there is like, if you can get together as a a team it definitely is like a huge help uh, even just once a year right yeah it's it's funny because the the in-person get-togethers are the off-sites even though everybody doesn't work on site but yeah for the book club thing i'm actually working on putting something together for just people in the community right and so we'll we'll pick up a book and read it i think a lot of that really just comes down to not just your ability to say hey we're going to get together and do this thing together, but also encouraging people to take the time to watch a video or read a book or whatever on their own, right? And so whether it's, hey, this is an area that we need you to be proficient in, so go watch this video series or stuff like that. And a lot of times that kind of coaching is welcomed because a lot of people struggle with the, what do I learn next? And so if you can point it out and say, here's what you need, here's what we would like you to learn next. And here's the the thing. And then the other thing that I've seen with a lot of that is basically saying, we're expecting a 40 hour week or whatever from you, but five of those hours should be, you should be spending an hour a day, basically leveling up or a half hour a day or whatever. Yeah. That's another like X factor with COVID, in my opinion, is the 40 hour week added to remote time zones and like all of that complexity that has totally changed the game of like when when you are working 
versus what you are doing. And I've very much gone into the what you get done camp instead of the when you are working with like some overlap with your teammates. I think one of the things that I feel like kind of happened during COVID. It, so as somebody who is also a remote worker before COVID started, I feel like COVID kind of muddled the situation in that like now. So it has to do sort of what I feel like now everyone, the expectations of what I need to do as a remote worker have like increased because with everybody sort of like piling in to be remote workers and with people, you know, just not having those barriers and not knowing when to quit. Now, like everyone's working ridiculous hours and it's just pushed. I was already working too many before. And now it's just pushed that sort of pressure. It's just ratcheted up the pressure, I feel like, to do like a whole much more to remove your barriers, right? Because when all of your coworkers are like, well, hey, let's just schedule our deploy during dinner hour. And I'm like, every week, I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but I have dinner with my family. <laughs> That's what I do, <laughs> you know? And, but, and they're like, oh, well, but this is when we're going to do it. So then, you know, then I'm not on any any of the that thing whatever it is you know it's deploys for me but maybe it's something different for you or you know whatever it is so like that can be a thing to deal with and you know you can discuss that kind of stuff but people that don't understand like that perspective because maybe they don't experience it themselves or they just haven't had like enough time to be frustrated by it in order to sort of like understand that perspective they aren't going to be able to have like that honest discussion and so i feel like there's there's some muddying and I guess I don't I've thought about this a couple times and I I hope that it settles down one day but I don't I don't know and I don't know what you guys think about that if you think that like because it's clear that you guys are experiencing slightly different variations of this like I don't know if you think that some of this stuff goes away over in a few years as we get better at remote work or mm-hmm. <laughs> or if it's here forever well on my personal devices I purposefully have uninstalled or deauthenticated any accounts related to work-related chat. So whether it's email or Teams or anything like that, because I found that I was getting pinged at 11 o'clock at night for things that are non-urgent. And to me, that's not really ex- acceptable. If you want to, if there is an emergency, you know, back before we had a whole bunch of collaborative technology, you would pick up the phone and call someone. But that was a very intentional act to do instead of just click on someone's name type of message. And so I found that during the pandemic, th- those number of late night messages had increased. And, you know, it. I, w- I was honestly usually already on my computer, but that's beside the fact. You know, sometimes I'm not, or sometimes I'm at my kid's Taekwondo class or whatever. And so I just found that having that separation, especially if you're a remote employee, having a separation of work and personal life is all the more important. Because if yeah. number one, if you don't have a physical separation, like if I'm working on my day job in my bed on a laptop, then I'm not really giving the company my full focus or I'm not giving myself the re- relaxation time that I need. So I have my own office that's separated from the rest of the house. Kids are not allowed in here. And when I'm in here, I'm working. There is no goofing around. This is where I come in and work. When I'm done working, I leave all my work stuff in here. And then I go out to the house. And it's kind of funny because my wife would say like, Oh, hey, David, how's the drive? We just still kind of act like it's like, Oh, I'm just getting home from the physical office back at home. So yeah, I think it's a culture thing for the notifications. 
after after hours if i had to what what i do is i try and teach like hey you can send me messages but if you're unless you say that it's urgent i'm not probably going to respond until i'm back or schedule your messages with slack like schedule it for tomorrow at nine if you want to tell me something and you don't want to forget it but yeah and i tell that to my team too i say if i if you see a message come in and unless i say it's urgent and it's after your work hours don't respond to that yeah the issue I run into, and it's kind of the same deal, is I've gotten the, well, where the heck are you, right? At least for the first while with this contract. Why? Well, everybody else who is working for the company I'm contracting with or is contracting with them, they're all on the East Coast, right? They're all Eastern time. And I live in Utah, which is mountain time. And so I, and, you know, I have to take my kids to school now in the morning and stuff like that because that's all ramped up. And so I'm not on the computer until eight in the morning, which is 10 in the morning for them. And so they'll send me a message at 9 a.m. their time. And then they're like, where the flip are you? Right. And so it's not in the evening cutting into the family time. It's in the morning where it's, hey, look, you know, I've got to get kids out the door and make sure they have, you know, something to eat during the day and that their shoes are on the right feet and all that stuff before we go. And so. Yeah, I think a lot of what we're talking about here is that one thing that John mentioned, though, with the transition, you know, over the pandemic, too, that I've seen is that a lot of companies got comfortable with the idea that they could walk into an office space and see all the developers merrily working away and feel good that stuff was getting done. And now that everything's gone remote, they don't have that. They don't have that oh, I can see that everybody's working. I can see that everybody's on task. I can see that everybody blah, 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 right? And that also, I've I've seen that become an issue with some places where they're kind of breathing down people's necks and trying to make sure that they're double checking that code's getting committed and what have you so that they know that the work's getting done. And And that's another downfall I've seen of some companies trying to transition. Or now that, things have kind of cleared up a bit. A lot of companies are comfortable coming back and their employees don't want to anymore. And so they're, they're fighting that because, again, the boss at the top wants to walk in and see everybody merrily working away and everybody else is going, I'm twice as productive. And most of the companies that I've seen measure it, they find that their people have been more productive working from home. But they, they want the feel goods of walking through and seeing people working. Yeah, you see those, those jokes on Twitter of the recruiters posting like, when I see your company saying return to work and like, you know, the money rains down because they know all the developers are going to look for, look for new jobs. Yep. <laughs> I actually wanted to, to hit on something that you were talking about, uh, Chuck, because one thing that I've noticed, I am just now sending my first kid to school. And so I'm just kind of curious if like those of you who have already been sending your kids to school are experiencing this as well. But it's harder to send your kid to school now because so for example like what we have to do is we can't drop off our kid we can't like there's like the protocols for everything because you know all the schools are like well now we have to like have these vaccine related or covid related like protocols and we, you know we can't have too many people in the same area at once and things like this so you know you the way that you 
take your kids to school is now very different. And I mean, we even if we wanted to do like a bus thing, like there are the bus doesn't come to our house, like the bus would come to like a certain location, but only so many people like we have to do the same drop off like protocol kind of thing at that location, which I think is like little nuts, but whatever, like the schools are doing this (laughs) stuff for like they're implementing what somebody else is telling them to do, first of all. So I'm not like, yeah, I'm not like yelling at my principal or whatever for like implementing some law or edict or whatever like this is just what's got to happen and yeah that's frustrating it takes a lot longer like it's an hour and a half process to take my kid to a school that's 15 minutes away because it's that's just what it is it's really hard now and i didn't know like what it's like like if you and dave maybe experienced that as well but i feel like before i feel like i would not if I didn't have a kid, I wouldn't realize just how long that takes or whatever. And there are other things that like, I feel like, you know, just people aren't really realizing that like people just kind of have to do now or whatever. The hardest time was when we had the work, uh, the kids were doing digital learning, you know, kind of mid pandemic, because we had three kids. So they needed three computers, which, you Mm -hmm. know, I like computers. So I didn't mind getting those set up, but the distractions, it's almost like summertime year round. The kids are just fighting and arguing, you know, yelling, screaming like all year long. And it was really hard for us because having four kids, you don't get a break. It's just go, go, go 24 seven with the kids fighting and screaming. So from that area of working remotely in the pandemic, it, it was very trying. And if you don't have a good foundational, solid family uh, dynamics or just however you want to phrase it, then things get a lot worse. You know, people are on edge a lot more and stuff at home, maybe not getting out much or you find yourself sitting at the computer more hours and not getting any exercise. So I think it introduces its own challenges. But then again, on the flip side, you know, as Chuck was alluding to with the remote or I don't know what they call it, the... um. Uh, back to office strategies or the back to office policies that some companies are now starting to instate now that the pandemic is kind of winding down or allegedly winding out. Maybe people are just tired of it. So they're wanting to get back to the office. So you have people who initially were hired on during the pandemic as a remote only. And now all of a sudden, they are having to shift the, their entire dynamics of their life from going from a remote employee to a office employee. And I think in those situations, it's going to really screw up with some people's careers because they were remote for a reason, not necessarily because of the pandemic, either a medical issue or some other issue that requires them to need to work remotely. But at the same time, I've seen people take remote work to a bad extreme where this happened many years ago, different company, different boss. He actually drove by an employee's home who was not performing well. And she was outside in the backyard playing with her kids during work hours. She was a customer support person. So, I mean, she was needing to be on the phone answering calls, but her call times was always, you know, a third of everyone else's. So, you know, I think it's, I really don't have a point here to make except just ranting a bit about it especially the back-to-office strategies that some companies were trying to instill. I think Apple is one of the public ones that have been receiving a lot of backlash about it. 
And they've had to kind of go back and revamp it multiple times. Yeah, when I was working at Morgan Stanley, they were talking about going back to the office. But they had hired people all over northern Utah, and they had hired a lot of us during the pandemic. Yeah, there were reasons why I was remote, and there are reasons why I still remain remote. And yeah, so there's definitely that. I also want to point out that you ex- you described really well what was happening at my house during the pandemic for school. I don't know how you knew it. I'd like to know how things went for your kids. But noise cancellation uh, headphones for me. Was oh, I know, right? The pandemic. It it was. It really yeah. helped me focus more because the kids would just scream. You know, oh, all yeah. my kids are nine and under, so mm. they don't understand. Like, hey, dad's on a work call. Be quiet or anything like that. It's she stole my Legos. He broke my toy. You know, world's ending. Uh, it doesn't get better. My oldest is 16. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I, I totally agree. So we're kind of talking about some of the challenges with maybe being remote, going remote or coming back. And then we've talked so- about some of the things that you're doing, Jake, and some some of the things that some of the rest of us have done to make it work. Well, one thing I'm curious about, Jake, is since you're not around people, what what do you do to make sure that things are working for people and that things are working for the company? Because, I mean, if you never check up on me, things are working great for me, right? But right. if it may not be working great for the company, I, you know, maybe I am, maybe I'm one of those self-motivated people who's just going to work all day, but maybe I'm not. And so, you know, how do you make sure that the people that need kind of the encouragement get it and the people that just want to be left to flip alone until and they'll just get their crap done, that they're getting just enough check in to make sure that when they do get hung up, that they're not stuck. For sure. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that I'm in a unique situation because my company is on the smaller end. We have 60 people. 40 of them are based out of headquarters. And the 20 of us that are remote, six of them are or on the engineering team. But my job requires me to wear so many different hats. And I hate that phrase, but there's not a better one for what I do. That I I really have to, it sounds boring, but I have to be in lots of meetings to understand what's going on at a company level. And then I've had the luxury of designing from the ground up how engineering works at this company. And so I've designed it in a way that it matters less how often I see that little green dot on your Slack notification and more about like the actual output that is being produced. Mix in the pairing sessions we were talking about earlier and you have a pretty cohesive mm. environment for people to work, feel empowered to ask for help and make sure that they are getting the help that they need. So it's, it's kind of like a lot of different things. One of the biggest things I think, which seems simple, but I think has a huge impact is directing people to talk in public channels on Slack all the time. Like I almost never do direct messaging because I believe that unless it's a crazy personal thing you want to talk about, chances are somebody else has that same question or needs that same context that you're about to give. And direct channels really help get people into the conversation, maybe not at the exact same time, but at least everyone's kind of on the same page. We all know what we're working towards, why we're working towards it, and how we can help each other. I've always said to my team, you will never, ever be, you know, you'll never have anything bad happen because you asked a question, right? Like no, no one was hired because I thought you knew the answers to all questions possible. And that if you ask a question, that's going to invalidate that. So talking in public channels really gets us all on the same page and lets us kind of really coalesce into one team that's driving towards a goal. And that's what we do. We work in two week sprints and we never give time estimates for anything shorter than two weeks for what we're working on. There's never the situation where people say, well, when's that going to be done by? Or like, what date can you have this done? We use, you know, 
point complexity estimation and sprints to measure a velocity. And then that's how we work. Requests come in, we talk about them, and we put it in the backlog. I think that along with the public channel communications and um, the, the the pairing sessions and the meetings really make us feel like even though we're a remote team, we're still very much part of the company that is not remote. So I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, why did you start Raygun? You know, I, I started Raygun. It was actually our 11th product that we built. So, you know, if you're a fellow software engineer thinking you want to build something and build a business, this was the 11th try, right? And we built it because way back when I was writing more code for customers, I used to instrument my code to send an email to myself when something went wrong. And it would let me kind of get in front of the issue before the customer complained. And so we built a, a whole product called Raygun for crash reporting initially. Uh, it expanded out into other areas, but it was really just building a full solution to what I'd been doing years earlier to try and build better software. I love that. Just scratching your own itch. It makes a ton of sense. And, and I do that too with some of the stuff that I'm doing, either with podcasting or programming. Yeah, absolutely. The The most awkward thing was when we actually instrumented some of those prior 11 products. And that's when we realized that about 1% of users will ever actually report an issue. And you go, oh, we might have been a lot more successful earlier if we'd known that. <laughs> so that's kind of the whole value prop of Raygun. Yep, absolutely. And it, it makes sense just to put it in there. So folks, if you're looking to try something like this that will tell you what your problems are, go check out raygun.com and get a free trial. It sounds like you basically put everything, you, you said basically you put everything into the, your sprint. You don't estimate, you know, times less than two weeks or whatever. Um, and it sounds like you're basically saying, oh, we can do 40 points as a team, you know, so let's just pile in, you know, 40 points worth of work in the sprint and like work on it. Um, I think, jeez, oh, I, I think this affects you whether you're remote or not. Um, if, if you're, <laughs> you might not be doing agile, right? If, if you're like, basically like, oh, um, you know, I want this out in two days, you know, let's just, uh, let's see what developer I can put that on their plate. Right. And then at the end of the sprint, you also then say, oh, it's weird. We're not getting our work done. You know, like we didn't get the sprint work done and, you know, people were, it, then people are just like, yeah, cause, cause you keep, you know, changing what we're doing in the sprint, right? Like you're, you're invalidating our planning and, or, um, I've definitely worked at places where, we estimate something, then we work on it and change the estimate. Um, and, and I'm like, well, that kind of like, it, it just, it, there's a lot of ways to like break your planning so that you aren't actually even achieving the goal that you're trying to do with agile. And I, um, uh, I think part of the reason why I was saying this is I just wanted to be like, well, kudos to you for like, for holding on to that. I think that's really hard. Like most places seem to struggle with that in some way or another. There's like so many different ways that you can cause yourself to like, just not be able to like, you know, make it work. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm lucky, honestly, that I got the autonomy that I had to design and implement this system. And then we are trusted to work in this way. And it's been, reinforced because we get a ton of really important work for the company done in in great time frames. And so I think it would be a different story if I did all this work and then we just never shipped anything. I don't think I'm I'd curious, Jake, to you about it. How do you measure things? Yeah. Like, how do you know, like, let's say, cause you have like very strict, like, okay, we have these, this point system and you're just going to, you know, 
schedule this stuff for based on points and we have this many people like how do you know like whether something's not working in the team that exists or that you need more resources like what are you measuring to gauge that and like when you need to hire more or you know maybe restructure something like what kind of metrics are you following for that yeah we we always need to hire more um i would love to hire like 15 more people. We just don't have the budget to do it right now. So unfortunately, I using what I have, um, which is a fantastic team that basically I've been coaching on how we do complexity estimation. And so we all kind of agree on complexity estimation, like what one point means versus two points and all that stuff, right? Then what we don't do is if we estimate something poorly and it takes way more than we thought, we don't go back and change the estimate to your point, John, because then we, we can't kind of learn from our mistakes and then our velocity isn't reflected actually what it was supposed to be. So if we commit to 30 points and we do eight um, because one of the two pointers was actually an eight pointer, then we messed that up. We got to get better next time um, in our complexity. And so then measuring the impact, like identifying where problems are, I think that really comes down to before we even get to the estimation, really, we talk about the asks, like if we are having trouble scoping the asks down into um, pieces that we can assign complexity to, then that's where that's where we need to improve our communication with stakeholders, internal mostly stakeholders, and how how that works. Um, if I see that the the skill set of the team does not reflect what's in the sprint, right? So say we have two primary front-end engineers and three primary back-end engineers. Everyone's kind of full stack, but like not really. People gravitate towards one or the other. And I have nothing but 40 points of back-end work in the sprint. Sure, we could do it. And the front-end people will do the work at a slower rate, but maybe they still want to. That's the kind of like gentle nudging I do at sprint planning of like, hey, let's make sure we have something that I can kind of see somebody doing this kind of work for. And if I can't, and we just, our hands are tied, we have to do this work, that's that. But after we get past that point, we have a a mid-sprint check-in. So like in in the middle of the sprint, we say like, hey, how's it going? Does anything get kicked out? Did we change our minds that like, this is not the right avenue for us to go in? Or did we underscope the hell out of something and have to bring a lot of stuff in? And so we, it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of it is just communication. Very, very, very open communication. What I never wanted for my team to be viewed as, as, you know, some engineering teams are viewed this way. And it's not really not their fault of these ivory towers, right? Where people just go off and they do, they do the important engineering and you can't bother them and no one knows what it's doing. And the Wizard of Oz curtain is revealed and here's like some crappy code that people have written or maybe good code. You never know. But I want to make a transparent as possible process, but that has its own downsides, right? If you make things too transparent, then you get a lot of opinions and opinions are great, but we also still need to control the process too. I was going to say before you, you mentioned that uh, you kind of get to run things how you want. And what I found is that uh, management is usually okay with that as long as they're getting the reliability, like they can count on you getting the work done and they can, and they have some level of predictability, right? So we're going to get at least this amount done, or we're going to get these features done within this time frame, right? Whether it's, you know, well within the time frame, or whether it's going to be a little closer than that. Um, if, if they can kind of plan on what you're going to be able to do, then they mostly will leave you alone, Is has been my experience. And so, 
you know, if, if you have those processes in place and you can me- you're measuring the right things, it makes it pretty easy to be able to do that for them. For sure. And like I said, I like a transparent process because, you know, it's easier to defend when we make decisions. And it's also mm-hmm. easier to show exactly what what didn't go so great. And there's a nice paper trail for people to follow. And it's not just, a uh, you know, a black box of, of questions. I like the opinions I get from my whole company, but not everything's going to go in the sprint. It just can't. But that's the thing, too, is if you have that transparent process that you can say, hey, you brought us A, B, C, D, and E, and you're saying you need all of them done in this time frame. Well, you know our process. We can't do it, right? And here's here's how they fit together if you, we put them in whichever way you want. And so you've got to prioritize these so we can properly make decisions then it's not a, well, you do it or else, it, which I've also seen companies do. That always works out so well. Um, or, you know, yeah, it's okay. Well, these are the ones that are critical and we'd be really happy with you if you could get the others done. For sure. And I have a counterpart too, which helps all of this. Yeah. I have a head of product that helps me you know, make sure that we are going towards the right company goals. I do a lot of the infrastructure back end and some product stuff too. Right. But, you know, he's he's there to help me make sure that we kind of have a united goal of like, okay, in this sprint we are going towards this feature. You know, let's let's communicate that. Let's do it. Let's get it done. And we usually end up there. So things are going well. Yeah, I think the I I think that's like also a really big thing too, right? So um companies which don't have like a good project management structure or you know just not maybe like a less than ideal team right um either the development group makes up for it in some way right uh by writing their own tickets or other janky stuff right like and then you're basically spending a portion of your time doing project management uh with very expensive employees right or more expensive employees uh maybe you should think about whether that's what you want to do or you just you know as a company you know you don't have that and then you either way what ends up happening is that um when you don't have a good project management structure like your support structure for your development staff isn't good enough then you end up getting just angry at your development staff you know your development staff isn't happy um yeah and lots of negative stuff happens and a lot of your problems are self-caused by just not having the right support structures in place um and it's something that's you can deal with at a smaller scale. Like, okay, you got one or two developers, but as you scale up, like it becomes so much more important um, really fast. Would you agree? Um, I, I agree with everything you said. Would you agree that developers should have a little bit of project management ability? I think, sh- I, w- I don't know what anyone else thinks, but I think should is the wrong word. I think that just like, it is a plus for you to be a full stack engineer when you are working, let's say, on back end stuff or front end stuff, right? Like, I think it's great to have that extra perspective. And let's say that, um, it, and obviously, that 
changes a little bit if I'm specifically like trying to hire you. For example, if I'm trying to hire an architect or I want an architect for like, you know, basically the whole system, I, I want them to be a full stack engineer, right? Because you need to have all those perspectives if you're going to architect the whole thing. So it kind of depends on your role. But if if your role is to be a full stack or I'm sorry, a, a front end or a back end engineer, then being a full stack engineer is a plus. And I think in the same way, um, if I'm hiring you to be a developer, um, I think it's a plus to have the ability to hand, you know, to do some project management. I think it's really bad if we make that a requirement because, once again, people aren't going to like it. You know, it's not necessarily going to be people's talent, right? And that doesn't make you a bad engineer to have it. Um, but let's say that I'm hiring you to be like, uh, I, lead engineer is the wrong word, but if I'm like hiring you basically to sort of be like uh, kind of in that director-ish type role, we really need to work aside here. We need to work on some really good universal and general terms that we can all agree on and that, that match, you know, company to company and don't change, but whatever. Anyway, so when you're sort of in that like directorship type role, right, where, uh, and, and this is slightly different from company to company because you know maybe it's called the lead engineer right in some places and maybe it's it's just a team lead you know that's sharing a portion of it or maybe you legitimately have like a director who's like half doing some project management type stuff on the side you know and doing like coaching kind of stuff because it sounds like you're kind of like sort of in some somewhat similarish space right here um that person probably needs to have that, you know, otherwise they're going to be at a deficit when, you know, they're trying to do that kind of work uh, or trying to make sure that the work it, because having project management experience also helps you to judge whether or not uh, the work that you're getting from your project management team is good enough. Right. Um, so I think all of that's important for that, but I don't think it's a should, I think it's a, it's a nice to have except in certain key roles. Yeah. I think, Having some project management ability or at least knowing how the flow of things work can really help you as a developer, especially if you come up with a new feature and your manager says, you know what, I really like that. I want you to own it. Well, having the project management ability, you will be able to lay out, you know, all right, here's what this feature is. Here's what's required. Here's how we need to approach it. From the infrastructure side, here's what's going to be involved. Just being able to uh, kind of see it from all different directions, it will, I think, ultimately make it a better feature in the long run versus someone who, you know, same situation, but doesn't have a lot of uh, project management experience. They may just kind of just start greenfielding it. And then they say like, oh, okay, yeah, we didn't think about that aspect. And so they go back and rewrite it. Ultimately, you can get to the same conclusion or the same end product, but one might take longer, okay, then be more expensive or have some frustrations along the ways. I think that's what I was going to... I think you said better what I was about to say. So, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think it should be a should, to your point, John. Um, but I think that it it helps. And I think taking it back to our earlier discussion about being a remote engineer, specifically being a junior remote engineer, learning some of those like project management or maybe even just time management skills really helps you as a developer um, as well. So speaking of remote, my kids just got home and my office is neighboring the garage door. So I'll leave myself on, on unmute. 
So you can just hear these storm children come in and <laughs> the chaos that they bring. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny, you know, back to that time zone thing, right? Because my two older kids get home in an hour and a half because of the time difference. And then my oldest two kids don't get home until, you know, an hour and a half after that. It's it's just funny how all of this adjusts and yeah, I was going to speak to that time zone issue too, because uh, at Doximity we have you know hundreds of engineers, uh, all different time zones, uh, even as far as France, right? And so, you know, how how do you like get everybody to work together? I mean, definitely having like asynchronous channels and and work, uh, you know, methods helps a lot. Uh, but a lot of it, when I first joined, uh, I was put on a team initially with a lot of people from the West Coast, and it was, you know, me solely on the East Coast. And so, you know, you get to that point where, okay, like you've done all this work in the morning, and then, you know, everybody comes on, you know, when you're just about to go for lunch, and then when they go to lunch, you know, uh, then you're like kind of back and working away, and then all of a sudden they get back from lunch and have all this huge surge of requests. And, you know, all of a sudden it's, you know, four o'clock and you're like, well, you know, maybe this will, this will have to come tomorrow. And, you know, you learn to, you know, unfortunately learn to manage your time, you know, the hard way uh, in that way. Um, but what it ended up happening over time is, you know, we started stacking teams uh, more heavily in the same time zone or, or close to it, right. Where, you know, there was more overlap between people uh, than not. Uh, and that was a huge help uh, in taking out uh, a lot of barrier there. But it's still like ha- having that, the asynchronous channels uh, is still, you know, hard to figure out, right? Like, what do you throw asynchronously and what do you not? It's really tough because I think that if you, if you think of it from a management perspective too, like, if you have engineers working on bi-coastal, right, something that might have been able to be done synchronously or like with pretty tight feedback loops, all of a sudden becomes like 12 hours to 24 hours of like, I did something, push it up, you commented, you know, and then I see it the next day. It's tough. Um, and I think that I have, I have some engineers on the West Coast and a lot of engineers on the East Coast, and I try my best to be available for everybody, <laughs> like kind of like the X factor of just like, you know, I'm, I'm around, um, but that's not sustainable forever either, and I've realized that. So I've seen it work well in other places of people like either bucketing people together in their time zones or making tasks that require um, not so much collaboration with people from other places. Is that what y'all do at Doxin? Uh, I think the biggest helpful piece of it is like the expectations are set up front, right? Like everybody sets their working hours and everybody, you know, respects those working hours. And so you kind of like are expected to set your notification settings on how you would, you know, respond. And so, you know, it's very easy in Slack to say, okay, after this time, you know, silence all my notifications until the next day and they'll come back the next day and you'll get the notifications when you start the day again. So that's huge. Uh, and finding like kind of things that uh, fit around that kind of culture are how we've embraced it. Right. And so, you know, anything that has like long form discussions uh, where uh, 
you know, you want to have a conversation and having that feedback might be nice. Uh, you know, it gets thrown into a longer form medium that can handle that, right? Like Google Doc or, you know, we'll create a dedicated Slack channel to the topic and people can just come in and, and chime in and we'll just, and set like, okay, you know, after this amount of time, days or weeks or whatever it may be, uh, this topic will be closed. But, you know, that way everybody knows what the expectation is for the topic. Everybody can has the opportunity to chime in if they want to express their opinions. Uh, and it's definitely a huge help uh, in that way. I, what what do you use for your documentation stash? Because this is something that came up with the contract that I'm working is, it's like, well, where do we document this stuff? And like one person's using GitHub, uh, Wiki, and then somebody else mentioned, oh, well, we could set up the we, giant pain in the... We I recently, mean, um, we have this problem. Uh, um, and yeah. Formed yeah. some working groups to kind of hash out what would work best. Uh, and, uh, you know, surfacing content across all of your different services as you grow is a huge problem. Uh, and honestly, just recently, we started using a service called Gleam that basically uh, is like Elasticsearch for all your services. And they'll go in and you can scope it based on permissions you have across these services. Uh, so it'll only index things specifically per user for whatever they have permission to. So if you have Google Docs, it knows the scope only documents in your index, which you have access to. Uh, we have an internal wiki where we house all of our uh, kind of product documentation, technical documentation. So we started indexing that and it, and also Slack. So, you know, now we have all of our Slack services and having like a centralized, it, if you can do this in any way, no matter what the service is having a central place where you could just search across all of the different things that you have, it's been like night and day uh, like so helpful and it, it's like kind of eliminated any barriers you have to like surface the content that normally would just be lost right like you know how do you find something uh, that you know was worked on you know maybe six seven months ago but you know you kind of know where it was before uh, and then all of a sudden you get the slack context and the articles on top of it it's just it it's incredible. So because Luke's not here, I will chime in his suggestion. If he were here, he would say just email it to everybody and let them come up with their own filing strategies. So uh, it sounded like um, that was a that was a recommendation for Glean. I haven't used it. So, yeah, I mean, we've only started like using it for the past few months, well. so I can't speak to it you know, fully. But uh, I mean, even just in the near term, I've found things that I wouldn't have have normally you know would have taken a little digging g-l-e-e-n oh e-a-n i thought they had deliberately misspelled it yeah there's there's so much stuff to like get right to get remote work right and i i mean shoot i see articles about it every day like <laughs> uh, about like how how terrible remote work is or like how i don't know uh there i always thought that you know remote work you were losing a little bit of productivity to gain, you know, basically access basically to more talent, right? Um, but then there was some study that said, oh no, we're more productive. And and now there's now now everyone just seems to be yelling and screaming about it. So I'm not really sure what to think. But um, I, I do know that like 
if you if you do remote work and you allow remote work, you definitely do access more talent. That part's definitely true about whether people are more, more productive or not. I mean, I don't know. That seems different. Seems to be a personal thing. And um, man, now that I'm getting into having kids, I'm like, man, it's really awesome and terrible at the same time. It was already awesome and terrible for other reasons, but but now it's got new uh, new coat of paint on it, right? Like uh, my wife is very excited that I will, you know, take one day a week to take our kids to school and she's very excited about that but like at the same time you know um as you mentioned earlier being at home means that you uh are there when your kids are screaming through the house and you're just busy like trying to like figure out why this stupid thing isn't showing up on the page and now you're just extra angry because there's just some screaming kid below you and you're trying to decide, does my wife need my help right now? Should I be going downstairs? Or Yeah, so it's just messy. When the decibels get to a certain level, then you, you go check. Up until then, it's, just, it's painful. It, you would think, <laughs> but I have, two, I have two kids that scream when they're excited as well. So it's, it's tough to tell sometimes. I, I've experienced this phenomenon. My general rule of thumb, <laughs> if I can hear... My wife screamed through my noise cancellation headphones. My attention is required out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I I mean, okay, that's fair. I wasn't even thinking about that. Yes. If I hear the sounds of my wife signaling that she she might be losing her cool, she probably needs to swap out for at least a little bit. I know. Is that, though, because of a crime or to prevent one? Uh, Well, I mean, it's, it's because my, because when my wife loses her cool, she might do something that she doesn't want to do right uh-huh. and as as her partner and very good friend like i want to keep her from doing some, things that she doesn't want to do right background right. noise so kind of machine yeah. learning algorithm so you can get a good level you know a <laughs> 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 uh, flash and starts going off in his office <laughs> As you started saying that, I actually thought where you're going with this was I needed to start feeding noise into like a giant into the you know into a giant loudspeaker and see which one and and then also into the AI and see which one keeps my kids the most sedated or on quiet a, on a semi related note. One of my coworkers made this uh, yeah. tool where you can feed your entire test suite uh, into like a noise generator, so it'll just like create noise based on the tests that are running and how fast each one is <laughs> i need that it, it it plays like a purring engine when <laughs> things are going well and then like gears grinding when the tests don't pass anyway um anything else with the remote work uh, you know you we did kind of veer in the off topic to ci and cd how do you manage your um ci setup especially when the build breaks and or deployments on a remote team? Like, how do you do that, Jake? I've always been a huge proponent of continuous integration, continuous deployment mm-hmm. across the board. Um, it's a culture. It is uh, it's going back to like things that might not be always in a developer's, you know, expected responsibilities. One of the expectations that I have is that, your code works when you deploy it. And if it doesn't, then you roll it back and you you fix it. You know, Um, some places that I've, I've worked before had like dedicated QA, which is, is nice, but has its own set of complications. 
Um, but we keep things as small as possible, small deploys that go out frequently. If we are confident in a deploy, we'll hit that merge button on a Friday. doesn't matter. Um, people will be, you know, if it's something that needs eyes, people have eyes to um, watch things afterwards. Or if it's something that we need to put alerting around, we do that too. Like that's really solved a lot of the, the pain point of trying to coordinate deploys for me. The, I actually, when GitHub, uh, no, it was Heroku. Heroku had that issue with the the, the pipeline issue from mm-hmm. like feels like a year ago, but maybe it was like three months ago, and we had to go back to manual deployments. That was a that was a rough time because you wake up and like, oh, none of the code from yesterday went out. Huh? Okay, I guess I'll push it. Makes sense. Um, if something goes wrong, how do you manage farming that out? Because when I was the last time I worked on a team that really genuinely used CI was when we were working in an office, right? And so, you know, you might show up the next morning and it'd be red or it'd be yellow because it failed sometime in the night and then started passing again because of a time zone issue or something, right? And so whoever saw it, it was their responsibility to debug it, right? So basically whoever showed up first, if there was a CI issue the night before, would have to handle it. Otherwise, if it was just during the day, then, you know, we'd all kind of pile on. Um, do you just kind of do the same thing in Slack or whatever and just say, hey, it's red, somebody handle it? Or how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, I mean, we use the the GitHub prehook checks and, uh, you know, your pull requests can't actually be merged unless you have a passing build. So right. presumably everything that goes into the main branch has, has passed CI in the very rare cases where somebody remembered to put the, um, the forgot environment variable in CI or something like that, then they're alerted to, to fix it. But I mean, knock on wood, we haven't had anything where everything looked green and then we went out to production and then things started to fall over or CI started to fall over. But yeah, we just have a regular setup with GitHub notifications through RCI, which is Circle CI, to our developers if builds fail. And the expectation is that the main branch is always green. If it's not, and you're the one that made it not green, you got to fix it. Makes sense. Yeah, I'm starting to, um, the more we talk about these kinds of things, the more I realize that like maybe I haven't hit the threshold of problems because of my team size. And so from my from my perspective, right, it's all uh, rose-colored glasses and green field, and we're all super happy. And then talk to me again in a year and maybe I'll be, you know, telling a different story. have a lot more gray hair. I don't know though, because typically what I see is once you get past about five people, like when you're under five people, everybody's kind of got enough fingers in everything to where, you know, you just kind of all mind share. Oh, well, Valentino was the last one working on that part of the code. So he's probably the best person to track down the problem. Right. Even if it, dives through something else that I touched, right? So it's it's my fault anyway. He can at least, you know, initially figure that out and then, you know, tell me, hey, look, it looks like you're, you know, it dives into what you were working on. So now you need to look at it. Once you get beyond that, that's where I see the problems start to crop up is after you get that sixth, seventh, eighth person in. And it sounds like your team's bigger than that. So, you know, kudos to you that it runs as smoothly as it does because, um yeah. Anyway, that's been my experience. But I did want to um, talk about something that uh, John brought up when we were talking about their transition to remote and how people thought that the talent pool would increase. Right? Like now you can hire anybody from anywhere. And the 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 flip side of that, which I don't know if if y'all have experienced this, is hiring remotely 
the interview process specifically for conducted completely remotely for engineers. Interviewing was already broken, right, in, in our industry. But I feel like the the Zoom meeting slash like Zoom whiteboarding slash take home slash whatever else kind of thing that people have adopted during the pandemic to evaluate engineering has really like made it harder to hire more junior developers, right? And also made it so it's just harder in general. And I, I being the one that came up with the entirety of our interview process at Nomad for engineering, think I did an okay job, but I'm sure that some people think I didn't. So what if y'all experienced, whether it be like as conducting interviews remotely versus uh, being maybe an interview candidate? I don't know. I've, I've been through a couple of these just over the last year or so with the remote interviews, right? Because I've interviewed with companies that we're either not bringing people into the office because of the pandemic or because they were not close. Um, and there are systems out there that you can kind of set up some kind of a setup so that where I logged into like some website and it was like, they were like, okay, now um, we need you to find, you know, this set of data out of the data set. And we need you to write code that's going to take this data and, you know, this array and turn it into this other data. Right. And so, they put me through some of that and, uh, you know, did some of the video calls and things like that um, where they could kind of get a feel for who I was and, you know, chat with me about whatever they wanted to chat with me about. And and I think a lot of that that wasn't available, say, five years ago. I mean, I remember trying to hire people five years ago. And, yeah, you could get on a video call, but it wasn't as common. And so, you know, I talked to people on the phone and. You know, I'd send them something and hope and you know, have them send me back the result. And I, I think nowadays you you have a lot more options as far as how you interact, similar to how you're interacting on your team. And so you can conduct your interview with a lot of those things, just see how they do, and then um, you know make a decision. Um, the other thing, though, and I tell people this all the time, is some of the problems you're not going to find out until you've worked with them for a hundred, two hundred, four hundred, you know, hours. Um, and so it, it's still a little bit of a crapshoot, no matter how robust your process is. And so what you're looking for is you're looking for ways to evaluate where they're at and then to rule out as many red flags as you can. Oh man. I, I, I think that you Chuck actually maybe in your last statement, I think, I think hit the thing that like, uh, it kind of sums up how I feel about it because I also agree. I think that right now we're in a spot where, um, I don't know. I don't know how many talks I've gone to, you know, that, that talk about this or that like better way of trying to do interviewing. And, um, I feel like there's a couple of different things that you can do. You can either try and suss out whether the person, you know, can do the job and try and do a really good job of that. And the harder you work at that, the more, you know, the more degrading the interview process is for that individual. And uh, the more likely you are to have a problem where you're filtering out the wrong candidates. For example, like if you give people take homework, you're filtering, you're typically going to be filtering out um, like uh, parents or other people that don't have a lot of spare time. Um and you're going to be, you know, uh, 
getting more people that have like the time to put in, you know, extra to get that. If you um, do live coding interviews, uh, you might catch some of those people that you just filtered out in the other way. But instead, you're going to be filtering out people who don't do well performing live, right? And things like that. Or, you know, maybe your interviewee is, you know, not very good at explaining the thing, right? And so you're going to be filtering for people who, you know, understand, you know, the person that's doing the explaining and filtering out all the people that don't. So, like, there's a lot of ways that you can accidentally filter out good candidates, um, no matter what you do. And, like, so for me, like... (sighs) I don't I don't know if there's like an exact great universal rule. I I feel like the most important thing to be doing is decide who you want to be filtering out, decide who you want to to work at your place and you probably need to be constantly reevaluating your interview process to decide if you're actually succeeding at that. Um because there's a lot of ways to fail. Like I mean shoot, like I, I mean I I know one of the ways that we've been doing or been trying to fix problems recently is like, hey, you know, I want to get as many people in front of the candidate as possible because I want to get a lot of different opinions because I want, you know, I don't want to have like this one gatekeeper person. And um, I don't know about you guys, but like I've gone through some gauntlet interviews and man, I, I mean, they're very, very taxing on the people that are interviewing. So like there's a lot of pros and cons to a lot of these different solutions and i don't see at least not right now i don't see something that's this is just a great all-around way to do your interview like i don't see a lot of that there's so many cons to just about everything out there yeah mm-hmm. I, I think i agree with that i think that uh, to your point filtering out people in the pandemic because everything was remote who were parents maybe those people wouldn't have been filtered out if it was not the pandemic and they were doing an in-person interview right because they would have taken the day that had gone into the office they would have done the thing sure um, yeah, it's, it's a struggle. You know, I was just kind of trying to highlight, like, I wonder if the remote work and like us being able to work for everyone anywhere, like, and how the interviewing world has changed along with that. Like, is it better? Is it worse? And I think it's kind of better in some ways and worse than others. I actually, funny enough, wanted to, I got all the way to the point where I'm saying, like, I'd rather just hire this person temporarily and have them literally do the mm-hmm. job. And then, you know, that has its own set of issues, right? Health insurance and people needing a stable, reliable job. So they just won't take that chance. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of complexities to your point. Yeah, but I think, and this is the mistake that I've seen companies make over and over is that they don't know who they want. And then they don't, so they, they're not selecting for the people they want. And then they can't figure out why they're not getting people who are working out the way that they wanted. And if you're explicit about that and you know what kinds of questions are going to lead you down the road, what kinds of interviewing practices are going to lead you down the road to getting that person, that that solves a lot of your problems. Because then it's, hey, look, we're looking for somebody who is not going to cause these problems that we seem to see crop up over and over and over again. And we're also trying to hire somebody who maybe has some experience or expertise in this, that, or the other part of Rails or front end or whatever that can help us move things along to the next place. And so then then you're interviewing for those things and you're much more likely to at least get the person that, like I said, has the skills that you need, you know where you can put them, 
and isn't going to cause the problems that you know are red flags for your organization. I think it's also important as an organization to acknowledge. I mean, I, I think this is actually really hard for organizations and it, it's it's yeah. more like a, this is what they should be doing and they're never going to because of reality. Uh, but acknowledging like when the problem isn't the candidates, but it's them, you know, like if you keep having the same problem over and over again, like you, you mentioned that and I was like, well, I feel like if it keeps cropping up, like, is it really the candidate field? Um, I guess it's possible, but yeah. no, you're I, right. I, More often than not, it's not the candidate field if it's a, it's a repeated problem. My favorite articles are the ones where you see uh, business owners complaining that they can't hire people because, you know, everyone wants too much money. And I'm like, so the price for labor has gone up and you're upset about it. Got it. So if yep, you can't afford much. that labor, then then you shouldn't be in business like that. Uh, maybe that's a little cold, but that's. <laughs> yeah, okay, you, you don't want to do it yourself. Track. You don't want to do it yourself and you're not willing to pay the price to not have to do it yourself. Anyway, I think we're kind of winding down, so I'm going to push us to picks. Uh, Jake, if people want to get a hold of you, they have questions about anything we talked about, how do they find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Jake Yesbeck. You can just Google Jake Yesbeck, and I will come up. I think I might be the only Jake Yesbeck in the world. So, yeah, just Google me. You're definitely our favorite Jake Yesbeck. All right, uh, let's do some picks. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Valentino, you're first on my screen. All right. So I found the repo. Uh, my coworker, John Wilkinson, he made this uh, RSpec sound formatter. <laughs> uh, and it's it's a kind of a hodgepodge uh, assortment of scripts uh, that you can get RSpec to kind of stream uh, generated sound effects as it runs. Uh, it's a lot of fun to play with. I recommend checking it out. And uh, my next pick, I've been playing with uh, Z-Wave recently. So I have a home assistant, uh, home automation system set up. I finally got a Z-Wave stick uh, from Zoos set up so I can now uh, pull and get Z-Wave related uh, hardware. And uh, it's been pretty great. I have it hooked up to a, a switch in my office. so I can turn the lights on and off programmatically. It's kind of fun. And my, my last pick, uh, I was kind of inspired. Uh, we've had Adam Gordon Bell on the show before. He has this podcast co-recursive uh and it kind of goes into historical context of a lot of like computer science related things uh and one he did on uh this program eliza that was kind of one of the first chatbots, which was really cool uh somebody had re-implemented it in ruby and it's a lot of fun to play with uh i would recommend firing it up 
uh, and trying it out. It's it's fun to to see what what the first you know AI chatbot was was kind of like. Nice, John. What are your picks? All right. Well, um, I have a little bit different ones. I've actually been a Flutter developer for the past two weeks. So, um, yep. Uh, I just Trader. been working on a project. Well, it's I've been moving this React Native project over to Flutter, and uh, I'm not ready to make a judgment call on on what I think about it yet. But um, uh, I'll let you guys know once once I'm done with it. Um, but uh, it's a mobile app, so sorry guys, it's not written in Ruby or anything. So I haven't actually been touching any Ruby really the past couple of weeks, if I'm honest, other than like fixing like a couple bugs and things like that. But so, um, but in my off time, I have been hitting up like uh, this really old game called Terraria, which you guys may or may not have heard of. It's like forever old. Um, and uh, <laughs> I've just been enjoying a lot of that. So <laughs> I'm throwing that out there as one of my picks. Um, but uh, so, yeah, anyway, so if you're not familiar with it um, and you are vaguely familiar with what Minecraft is, you can kind of think of it as like a 2D Minecraft, but it also has like a lot more of like the adventure elements that you would expect from like, I don't know, like an RPG game or something. Um, so so there's that going on. Um, and then my other pick uh, is kind of like a little bit of like self-help-ish kind of I don't know, PSA kind of thing. So uh, a washing machine was, um, we just found like these brown specks in it, like on our clothes and things like that. And what it turns out was it was like, I guess, mildew growing. You know, we had this pretty nice washing machine and we'd done all the things that we were supposed to do. Leave the lid open after a load so that it doesn't, you know, Mm -hmm. get you know, all, all musty and stuff inside. But I guess, you know, the machine doesn't like, this particular model didn't like clean itself properly. Anyway, we, we found something online where somebody was like hinting at that fact and we kind of followed the thread and found somebody that had like taken an, their washing machine apart. And they're like, yeah, if you like clean it all the time, like it cleans up to here. And he shows like this video of like this perfectly clean bottom of the of the the barrel thing or whatever in there but the rest of it like up top was like super brown and everything because it would just grow mildew up there and it would never get clean and ours was exactly like that so we took it apart cleaned it all out did all the things and now it's all gone and uh now we're have non brown stained clothes so it's great anyway so doing your cleaning your or fixing your own stuff sort of thing cool yeah i'd be interested to see get your take on react native versus flutter uh, Dave, what are your picks? Not React Native or Flutter. So, <laughs> uh, no, I do have some audio picks. So I have recently upgraded my channel strip. Before I was using a PreSonus Studio channel. And that was a really good channel. But it has a vacuum tube. And I think the tube started going out on it. So I switched over to a solid state channel. And I like it a lot more because it's specific for processing vocals. So it is called the DBX286S. And what I found, uh, one reason why I really like it is because it does have the channel preamp, but it also has a de-esser. So S's don't come in as high-pitched as you would normally have them with other things, uh, other non-EQ'd channels. But then also, it has a noise gate. And this noise gate, you can really tune it down so that even your breath sounds don't come through in the audio. 
And that can be a big time saver if you're doing video recordings and editing. So I found this to be a lot better. So that's my first pick. And then my second pick, actually, I'm picking because during this recording, it came from Amazon. So it is the uh, Biodynamic DT990 Pro 250 ohm headphones. So I've been in the market for some studio headphones that you know kind of give a wider range of frequency responses and more of a neutral sound instead of like the uh, AirPod Maxes that I have are very bass heavy. So these are very neutral and the sound clarity is so much better than what I've had on other headphones. And these things, you know, they are corded, they are open back, so you have you know some sound bleed. But in my case, that's okay, especially when talking in a podcast. I do want to hear myself, my voice a bit. Uh, if you want a close back, those are the 770 Pros. And these were like 130 bucks. So they definitely aren't cheap. They are expensive. But I mean, compared to the AirPod Maxes, which are like 500, you know, these things are a steal, especially for that flat, neutral sound, if that's what you're looking for. Awesome. Um, I'm going to throw out some picks. I usually start with a uh, game pick. I'm trying to remember the one that I picked on the other shows this week, and I am uh, drawing a blank. I guess I'll just uh, skip it this week. I'm sure I've got some. I'll I'll do a, a game that I've been playing on my phone. I kind of, in high school and stuff, got into um, Diablo and Diablo 2. And they have, a, they have a game for your phone now as Diablo Immortal. And it's pretty fun. I've, I've been enjoying that. Um, most of the quests and stuff, I can play it, you know, just long enough to kind of get a five-minute break and then put it down. And then I can pick it up and, you know, teleport to the waypoint and, and kind of pick it up where I left off. Um, or I can go, you know, chase down a bounty or I can chase down a, um, a and, you know, one of the quests for uh, I'm a shadow, not an immortal. So I can chase down one of the, the contracts and, and do that. And again, don't take terribly long to do. And so I'm enjoying that as just kind of a get a break during the day. And so I'm going to pick that. Um, and then, yeah, Rails Remote Conf. I'm just going to plug it again. Uh, CFP is open. Um, I'm starting to fill in some of the speaking slots. And anyway, it should be awesome. If you want to sponsor, you can come sponsor it. If you want to speak at it, you can come speak at it. Or you can go to railsremoteconf.com and go get a ticket. And uh, it's going to be, you can get a two-day ticket for the first two days. You can get a four-day ticket for all four days. Um, or you can get a workshop ticket that's all four days plus the workshops. And I'm going to be doing two of the workshops. And then if, pe- if you want to do a workshop, you can do a workshop too. Um, and I'm splitting the difference between the four-day and the workshop with the workshop teachers, instructors. So, you know, if you get 10 people in there, you know, you can make, you know, a, a chunk of change. So anyway, um, those are my picks. Uh, Jake, what are your picks? Uh, well, my son recently started daycare for the first time. So my pick is Tylenol because we have had various illnesses and him and us. And so really it's getting us through the day and making our lives not so miserable. So that's my pick in technology. Um, you know, it's, it's not new, but it's reliable. If I had to choose 
a new application to build, I would choose Rails every time. Every time. So I pick Rails. Talanoa and Rails. I think that'll do me till 2030 or so. Sounds good to me. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Thanks for coming. This was a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully we gave some folks some ideas if they're new to remote or if they've been doing remote for a while and looking for a solution to something. Um, If you have other tips for remote work, feel free to drop them in the comments. I'd love to see what all you all are doing that's working for you. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.